loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Maria J. Cafellas. Maria is a professor at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia and the author or co-author of three books, including Hollowing Out the Middle, Working Class Heroes, and Promises I Can Keep. Also, she's written a memoir that's just come out, Harnessing Grief, A Mother's Quest for Meaning and Miracles. Dr. Kafalis is an advocate, a philanthropist, a blogger, and the co-founder of the Calliope Joy Foundation, which in 2015 helped fund the nation's first leukodystrophy center of excellence at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and she supported families receiving treatment for MLD. She lives with her three children, Camille, PJ, and Cal, and her dog, Brody, outside Philadelphia. Welcome, Rhea. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. Uh, I'm very pleased to have you. We have some intersections of biography I thought I'd just mention to start out with from having just read your book. Uh, I lived in Philadelphia at a time. I know where you live quite well as a result. So some of the places you named in your book were fam- very familiar to me. And uh, um, uh, it was good to revisit them. And also, we've both had a spouse die of the same illness. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and and it's it's interesting because when my wife was diagnosed, uh, they gave her six months. And of course, in the time since, she died in 1995 after living with it for almost a decade. Um, but that was very, very unusual at the time. Now a little more um, usual, I guess, or um, possible, maybe I should say. So it was yeah. really also interesting to kind of revisit my experiences with her illness itself uh, in terms of your your husband's experiences. Um, but I wanted to start with something I heard you say in a, in a video, um, quote, when the worst thing happens, you are liberated, not because you are brave, but because the worst thing has already happened and there is nothing left to fear. I resonated so deeply with that. So although people may think what I just talked about was the worst thing, I, it wasn't actually. Uh, as I as I read you, could you tell the listeners a bit about this worst thing that uh, kind of the unimaginable? Yes, for me, um, you know, I had lived through at that point my husband and my father's and my father-in-law's diagnoses diagnoses with cancer all within a couple of months of each other, and. You would have thought that would have been the worst thing, but it turned out that that wasn't, those were not the worst things. And it it happened six months later when my youngest child was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And that, for me, that was the absolute worst thing that could have, I could have ever imagined happening. And it was this utter disintegration that resulted. And after the, 
trauma of the news once you, you know, the dust settles and you realize by some miracle you're still there. Um, I came to realize it was an oddly liberating place to inhabit, to have the worst thing happen and to realize that you were still there mm-hmm. and that, you know, you were, you were fearless, not because you were so brave, but because there was literally nothing left to fear. Um, and so when you were living in that place, as, as you can imagine, I'm sure, I'm sure you know, um, it is oddly um, powerful. And if you can figure out how to manage it and make a choice about how to manage that realization. That, that just feels so, so familiar to me. And um, you, you said in, a, in another location somewhere that I read or, saw, or heard, um, you know, you're, you're not a brave person. But the fact is, courage sometimes develops in moments like that. I know that was true for me. Um, challenges in my life have developed my courage. I didn't feel too courageous to start out with it. With Would that be true of you as well? Absolutely. I am not a brave person. My late husband was, was a naturally brave person. He, uh, and maybe it was more stoicism than br- bravery, but he could function and he compartmentalized his emotions and he you know, when my daughter was diagnosed, he seemed to embrace it in a way that was rather remarkable. One of the doctors who treats my daughter said she had never met a man or met a father who uh, not only was incredibly caring and loving, but but just embraced this di- this horrible diagnosis with this love with, and just ran towards it rather than ran- running away even as he was, himself was quite sick. I, I wasn't like that. I was so overwhelmed by the, the pain and the shock of it that I was submerging in my grief. And over time, absolutely, Cheryl, I learned how to be brave. I sort of studied it and, you know, impersonated a brave person. <laughs> and just kind make of make it until you make it, you make it, huh? Make until you make it, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think our spouses would have gotten along um, because similarly, <laughs> my, uh, my first wife was um, she, she just put one foot in front of the other at every turn, lovingly, but with great fortitude. And um, I still am not as. Um, uh, fortitude wired. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have to take breaks and hunker down and you know, do yeah. all of this stuff to have fortitude. She didn't seem to have to work at it particularly. No, but the good news is that you can learn it, right? And you Absolutely. Can, you can and and, and I'm em- emphasizing that about you. I mean, I really wanted to talk about that because there's sort of this dichotomy where either you're very brave and resilient and, you know, everyone says, oh, how do you do it? Or you're falling apart. <laughs> and yeah. and the, the message that we can both fall apart and respond, I feel is so important. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I you know, I'm a huge consumer of popular culture and 
I write in the book about watching the movie Love Story after my, you know, after my husband's diagnosis with cancer and being really just sort of infuriated by Oliver and <laughs> the, the depiction of, you know, Eric Siegel's version of being in love with someone who's, who's dying of cancer. And, you know, there's a scene, uh, I don't know, Cheryl, if you remember the movie, there's a scene where- well, Yeah, I Oliver, can bring it up from my memory banks. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's a scene where Oliver is out, they're skating, you know, he's skating in Central Park and, and Ally McGraw is impossibly beautiful in a mink muff um, and they're drinking hot cocoa afterwards. And he, and she says, you know, can you do me a favor? And he says, whatever you need. And she says, I'd like to go to the hospital. Can we get a cab and go to the hospital? And, and it's just this, this absurd, (laughs) (laughs) um, almost funny depiction of what this is like. And the the famous line from the movie, right? Like love is never having to say you're sorry. I was going to mention that. Love is more, more untrue words have never been spoken. Exactly. (laughs) Love is always having to say you're sorry. (laughs) That's all I did was say, so, you know, this kind of, um, you know, and then, and then, you know, Oliver just sort of whiny. He's just so annoying. Um, And so I, I really like to deconstruct the notion of the brave wife and the brave mother. I, I think that, you know, most families and most people feel tremendous pressure to live up to the hero, you know, heroic, you know, lion hearted spouse or parent. And yet no one gives you permission to be a hot mess and being a hot mess is, is better over the long run. I mean, I think the people who often, you know, the people who punch a hole in the wall, in my experience, when, you know, they, they manage this trauma better than the people who just sort of silently absorb it. Um, and that, you know, losing, you know, having a nervous breakdown is underrated as long as you can kind of contain. Would it really, I, ultimately, I'll tell you where I come out on it. Would it really make sense to be just fine? I mean, People process it differently, but I don't even believe that your husband or my wife were just fine. They just process differently. Um, But we're also talking about um, assumptions about where someone's at based on how they appear, Mm -hmm. aren't we? Mm -hmm. Um, Because even even now, um, it's been more than 25 years since my wife died. And when I tell people, you know, about that, for whatever reason, it comes up somehow, often because people ask me what I do for a living, you know, but um, either they're very tragic as if I'm still tragic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, or they're like, oh, you're so brave, which actually, as we were just talking about, neither of those things actually capture where I am at this point. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, uh, you know, as a widow, I mean, I, I feel like I could write a whole new book about widowhood. Um, it's such an odd social death and it's such a strange transformation because people, I, I suspect, find us as to be reminders of the fragility and uncertainty of the world. And so people who are kind of cocooned in their safe appearing lives don't be like to be reminded that tragedy and suffering await us all at any moment. 
And then at the same time, I think, you know, this whole notion of, you know, someone just said this to me yesterday. I think bad things happen to people because, you know, somehow you're uniquely capable of enduring it. And of course, we all know you don't have a choice in the matter. <laughs> yes. It's not, it's not like, okay, you pick me to have all these things happen. Oh, I'd like to send this back. I'd like to return this. It's not. As <laughs> you were wrong. I'm not uniquely capable. Thanks. I'm not uniquely capable. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, that, that whole trope, which I know is well-meaning, is the opposite of, of helpful. I don't know if I'd call it toxic positivity. I wouldn't know. I don't know if I'd go that far, but this whole notion that, you know, you're, you you were chosen to have this horrible thing happen to you. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works. I'm, I'm very aware though. So in the, in the course of my wife's illness, we actually adopted a child, mm. um, a quite healthy child. You know, but I have some experience with having a, a, a very dependent baby and toddler um, while caring for a, you know, a dying partner. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was imagining myself into your experience where you, you're living with your child who has lived, which is incredible, uh, for, she's 11 now, is that yeah. right? Yes, um, we'll talk in a minute about her particular um, illness, and and that is not usual, though we could just say. Yeah. Um, but just living with the disability part of it, uh, mine was reversed. My wife was highly disabled. My child was healthy but <laughs> demanding, right? Mm -hmm. And and how how would you describe kind of weaving those together in just in terms of practical? Uh, and especially this this past year when um, life's life with disability and illness has been com complicated by COVID, I, I'm sure that's had some impact. What would you say about that kind of living with both things at once? Well, so when he was first diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 2012, um, the treatments have really improved. As you, as you can imagine, multiple myeloma is held up as one of the great success stories in oncology research. So he, he, even though he was stage four when he was diagnosed, he was able to sort of come out of the nosedive of it and go into a remissive state for um, almost six years. And, and then in 2018, he relapsed. And then it was sort of a, a steady decline from 2018 to his death in April of 2020. And in the end, it was a very kind of compressed mortality because the disease had gotten into the spinal cord fluid. But all of that happened just as COVID was hitting. He actually died on April 16th, which is, you know, April 15th is considered sort of the peak of when COVID was hitting the East Coast and Philadelphia is only, you know, 90 miles from New York. And Philadelphia was very similar to New York in terms of the, the level of, of the disease in the city. Um, but I remember... Um, in, in some ways, my daughter's long illness, and so my daughter had been diagnosed at age two in 2012, and we were told, and this is absolutely true, that half the children with this disease, you know, the, the, the modal experience is that most of the children are gone by the age of six. Um, and Cal is now 11, and we're now in this place where 
her medical team has no idea, you know, why this is even happening and why she's done as well as she has. I used to think my, that my husband sort of sacrificed all his miracles to take care of her. He was, he was a very active, um, active caregiver. But in the end, I think, you know, that last year, I, I have no idea, Cheryl. I mean, maybe this, I have no idea. I, I was running. <laughs> what, one, one nanosecond I, at a time or. <laughs> I, I, you know, they discharged him and. I was running two hospice teams simultaneously because my daughter's on hospice and he was on hospice and in the house at the same time in a global pandemic. And we were all on lockdown together. And I was overseeing a staff of, you know, three nurses who were taking care of her and taking care of him. And, um, I, you know, he slept in our bedroom. He died in our bedroom. Um, and honestly, I have no idea. Uh, he, in the last thing he said to me was, I'm so worried about what's going to happen. And I lied to him very bravely. I was exceedingly good at pretending to be brave. I said, we're going to be fine. You've done everything. There's nothing left for you to do. You can go. And he was gone. First time in 25 years of marriage, he listened to me and he actually left. And, um, <laughs> he chose that moment. Yeah, he chose that moment. <laughs> um, and that was, but I, I honestly, you know, as like someone who's not brave to be running two hospice teams in the middle of a global pandemic and having my 16-year-old son at home and my 20-year-old daughter at home all of while this is happening, it's unimaginable. And yet it did happen. It did happen. And I'm still here. Still here. Well, that's, I, I remember thinking that when I woke up the day at, or maybe two days after because it was pretty busy the day after my wife died, but maybe the second day, I remember thinking, well, I, I wasn't convinced, but here I am. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it has not, in fact, killed me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's well, such a shock in a way. It, yes, yes, absolutely. You're, you're still standing in spite of it all. <laughs> we'll come back for more after, after our break. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find Maria Kefalas, go to mariacafalas, K-E-F-A-L-A-S dot com, or the calliopejoyfoundation.org. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. 
Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Maria Kafalas about her book, Harnessing Grief. And Maria, before the break, we were kind of talking about this, this um, I don't know, perfect storm of this pandemic and running two hospice teams and, you know, one foot in front of the other. And I had a, a few things that kind of uh, poked out at me one being when you tell someone who's dying you'll be okay that includes that you're going to grieve you know quite um that that's okay in that circumstance do you feel as if in some way uh, for me i know the long course of the illness before my wife died made me a little more comfortable with the fact that uh i was going to you know have feelings, I guess, um, that it was going to be a lot, but that that didn't mean I wasn't okay. I wonder if that's true for you as well in any way. Well, my husband and I had very different styles and at times I think incompatible styles for how we dealt with grief. He was, you know, very stoic. He was deeply private. He would get very angry from time to time, um, and I, I had these two holes in the wall, which were, you know, the results of him just sort of not being able to take it, you know. Um, mm. But I, on the other hand, screamed all the time, and I was very public, and I was blogging, and I was writing, and he, uh, he and I sort of negotiated a settlement, a detente about our very different styles of, of dealing with things. Um, and I also think that I sort of processed emotions for him. So he was, he was the person who could, you know, talk to the doctors and deal with the insurance companies and sort of, he, he liked to, you know, lay out my daughter's medications and he was very fastidious about his own care. He, he never let me even, he never even wanted me to go to chemotherapy with him. But at the same time, I was the one who, who did all the emotional labor in the relationship and, and for our children and talked about feelings and help people sort of imagine processing feelings because he just, he, he couldn't do that. So it was he an It wasn't wired like that, huh? It wasn't wired like that. And, um, um, but he was, you know, like he had his will all done. He, he, our last Valentine's together, he, he annoyed me. He, I love Valentine's day and he ruined it by saying, let's go to the notary public and, and um, notarize my will on Valentine's <laughs> Day, um, and just like, oh, that's really not good. But you know, it made him feel better. He he liked he liked the control. He liked 
you know, getting things notarized that made him feel like, well, I'm going to control the situation as much as I can. Well, in his frame of reference, I suppose that could have been an act of love, huh? Taking care of of business. Yeah, he also sold a lot of Netflix stock that week. So maybe that was also, you know, he was... (laughs) (laughs) liquidating assets trying to have everything taken care of and you know he was brilliant at it um but yeah it it is interesting i i we couldn't talk about it it was it was terrible though i mean that's my great regret is that we didn't talk about any of it you know he didn't say goodbye in any kind of formal way um he just couldn't bear to do it and that is you know i wish i had sort of been more demanding that way but I always felt like it was his show that he was the one with cancer and I had to be the supporting actor maybe that you was know, that's, a bad, bad mistake that's very interesting because over these 25 years um, gratitude becomes a bigger and bigger part of my experience mm-hmm. of of this death and one thing that I've been very aware of being grateful for is that my wife insisted that I be an equal partner. Not into, She had veto on the treatments, but in terms of the emotional process of her illness and facing her death and all that, uh, she wouldn't let me step back, which was my inclination to be the, um, you know, the supporting actor in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but she wouldn't let me. So I think that did help because those conversations happened. So that's that's interesting. I can see where if he was not kind of giving you permission on that, it would be hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, I have a, a friend whose wife has pancreatic cancer now, and we talk a lot about this because, you know, we'll talk about being in the doctor's office and and ha- and hearing two different things, having the doctor speak to you and, and having two different interpretations of the same exact conversation. And it's, you know, and it's very difficult to, you know, tell someone who's going through this uh, to burden them with how you feel and how you're worried or what you're thinking when they're so, you know, focused on how they're going to process this information and how they and how they want to spend their time. And, and so I regret not being more vocal, but at the same time, I, I I did feel trapped by the conundrum that this was, you know, his diagnosis and this was his disease and, and that I loved him and that I had to, you know, to be a caregiver um, meant, I think, um, putting my needs away sometimes. I don't think that, that was not certainly his intention, but the incompatible styles were, you know, I just didn't feel like I could burden him, but I should have. What, well, what's interesting though is that you're you're telling me you're an a, a naturally expressive person, mm-hmm. uh, and you you therefore did it a lot of other places. Um, you've written a book, you know, <laughs> you've did a blog, you've. It appears to me like you looked for people who would have some intersection with your experience uh, to to talk to. And um, let's get on to that because you, I guess I would say that once you came out of that initial panic, which I also resonated with, I had a period of that <laughs> panic, mm-hmm. 
once you came out of that, you were geared towards social engagement and action. Yes? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it was, um, it was interesting that once I got over that, that terrible shock, once I realized that I wasn't going to die, um, it just felt like I was dying. Once I realized that I was still there, I did have this realization, well, I, I feel oddly superhuman because this terrible thing has happened and I'm here and I'm indestructible in some sense because, <laughs> you know, what else can happen at this, at this stage of the game? And so I did kind of come to realize that or come to believe that I could use this pain and tragedy to do good in the world and that it was this superpower because I wasn't afraid of seeming foolish or making a mistake or failing or, um, you know, asking people dumb questions or asking people things that, that shouldn't have happened, you know, that shouldn't be possible. And so, you know, we started raising money and we started working with the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and we were able through Cal to, you know, help establish the first leukodystrophy center of excellence. And, and I, and I can say with, with absolute certainty that there would be no leukodystrophy center of excellence, which now cares for, which now when my daughter Cal was diagnosed, there were a hundred patients at the children's hospital of Philadelphia and two doctors doing work on leukodystrophies, which is a, a rare neurologic disorder in the same family as Tay-Sachs. And at the time when she was diagnosed, there were only two doctors at CHOP who, who treated these children, there was no research at CHOP. So even at one of the finest children's hospitals in the world, there was absolutely no one doing research. Now, um, you know, eight years later, with this center, which has a $5 million grant from the NIH, it now has 35 specialists, and it has half a dozen clinical trials. And uh, they see, uh, I believe it is something like 40 patients with leukodystrophy a week now um and so and i can say to myself i can say and the doctors if they were here they would say there would be no no leukodystrophy center without cal without what happened cal being calliope your daughter daughter. i'm saying that because i live in california and the whole education system is called cal so (laughs) to make sure people knew that was your daughter uh it's so uh you know that this is a fairly common story on this show that the worst thing in your life kind of leads to this miraculous outgrowth but you would never trade of course of course at the same time at the same time since you didn't get that choice (laughs) you know what an amazing thing to happen and i'm i'm particularly amazed because just for the listeners to know that illness uniformly, at least at the time, killed children who had it relatively rapidly. And um, medical science is not always too inclined to want to take on illnesses that, that have no, you know, positive story, as it were. And yet, and yet they don't get a positive story unless somebody takes it on. So it's kind of a paradoxical situation there. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, at the time my daughter was diagnosed, there was a small clinical trial in Italy for a gene therapy. And my daughter would never have been eligible for the gene therapy treatment, but it was this, you know, ambitious but small effort. 
And gene therapy was just sort of coming out out of a, a period of you know great disappointment. And in, in back in 2009, you know, after you know several very high profile failures and patients getting cancer and the death of a patient in 2000, you know, a lot of experts believe that gene therapy was never going to live up to its potential. And but in 2009, this young researcher in Milan named Alessandra Biffy had decided to launch a trial and she needed a disease that had no other treatments and that was pretty well understood and, and that people would be willing to, you know, let their children be treated by her because they had no other option. And mm-hmm. MLD, you know, ethically and scientifically and medically, you know, fit this kind of terrible set of uh, preconditions for the clinical trial. And they ended up having, you know, much to everyone's amazement, rather remarkable success. And today that therapy was just approved in, actually this year, it was just approved in, in the EU, one of the first gene therapies approved for children in the world. And so, I mean, it, part of it was, you know, being in the right place at the right time, but also I think um, really recognizing that here was an opportunity for us to be a catalyst for change and to really push a medical the medical community um, to invest in these diseases as part of the, the, the sort of explosive interest in gene therapy. And I, you know, uh, I give tremendous credit, credit to the, the, the leadership of CHOP, but, but it's funny because they'll, they'll say to me, you know, we wouldn't have done this without you. Um, so you need this um, set of circumstances. You can, you know, again, the reason my book is called Harnessing Grief is because I came to believe that, people who go through these challenges can take this pain and do such good in the world. My, my great friend, Liz Scott, who is the founder of Alex's Lemonade, which is a, a huge pediatric oncology foundation. She, um, you know, she said to me that she said, I would never have chosen for my daughter to get cancer. I never would have chosen for my, for my family to have endured this trauma. And yet, as my friend always tells me, normal people don't get to change the world, that human suffering is absolutely a prerequisite for change. Comfortable people don't want to get up in the morning and and agitate and make things better. So um, discomfort and uh, suffering are necessary for change. I'm thinking about uh, someone I interviewed a few times who was writing a, a book uh, a second book, the first was about her grief, and the second was called something like Grief, Love, and Generosity, that that if you actually engage with grief and, and really go through it, there comes a moment sooner or later for lots of people where they say, I don't want to waste this experience. I, you know, Absolutely. I want to use it. <laughs> Yes, you know, and in fact, you know, I'm sure you know that many scholars of grief now add as a stage the meaning making, the the absolutely, Um, and I and I agree. I could not agree more. Meaning is something that I've written about, you know, as a researcher for many years, and it was absolutely instinctive for me to to seek out the meaning in all of this and to you know and. Pretty quickly, within a year or so of Cal's diagnosis, I came to understand that that the only way you save yourself is by helping other people. And you can't sort of tell people that. They have to sort of come to that realization on their own. They have to be ready to hear it. Um, but absolutely, that, no question. That, I, I guess I would say, too, as a grief counselor, as I am, that it can't be used as a bypass 
I, I feel as if people, most people do need to go through the grief for a while first, mm-hmm. uh, or at least simultaneously go through the grief and do something meaningful. Uh, it It's not like if I make meaning, then I can skip the part that feels terrible. <laughs> you know, that doesn't seem to work for most people. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, but I mean, I think the, the, the way, as you know, I, um, I just remember seeing people that I grew up with, you know, widows and people who had lost children. And it was a time in the 70s and 80s where you hid your grief and you did, and people yes. thought it was fine not to talk about it. Um, and, you know, widows would sort of retreat to their houses and, and remove themselves from the world because no one wanted to even acknowledge what had happened. And it seems to me that, you know, maybe this is an overcorrection, um, but, you know, there is value in screaming at the top of your lungs and getting out there and, as I say, harnessing grief. If for no other reason, you know, there's, there's what comes out of it, for instance, this incredible program that you um, supported and and um, helped to move forward. And almost every week I'm talking with somebody who's had a big impact because of, you know, out of their grief. But it's also just, it normalizes what grief is for people. Uh, no one can read your book and think that you skipped over the grief. No, because you really describe it, you you um, you share it, and I feel that has such an important impact, right there. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot, Cheryl. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. We're going to take another break, and then we'll come back and and uh, talk some more. I want to, in particular, I want to make sure and talk with you about the medical system. Uh, that that may be an odd segue from where we are, but um, I was so struck by the things you described about Pennsylvania's system um, in terms of the support, and um, that is not true everywhere, and I just think that's worth highlighting a bit. So we'll talk about that when we get back. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page to find links to everything and to find Maria Kafalis. You can either search her book, Harness and Grief, or go to mariacafalis.com or the calliopejoyfoundation.org. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Maria Kafalas about her book, Harnessing Grief. And before the break, I mentioned, Maria, that I wanted to talk about the medical system because, you know, as I, as I know my, from my own experience and many other experiences, having life-limiting illness or disability, anything that is an ongoing um, health nightmare, uh, or catastrophe has such an amazingly potent economic um, result for most people. And in your book, you talk about um, you being informed really early on with Calliope that you automatically would qualify, even as I I know where you live, it's a very middle class to upper middle class um, town, but that you would immediately qualify for Medicaid. Do I have that correct? Yes, yes, yes. I, I was rather taken aback when we were diagnosed and the first thing they did after signing us up for Make-A-Wish was you need to get Medicaid. And I thought, well, we have good insurance and the social worker was like almost laughing and going, you're going to need this. And Medicaid, um, much to my surprise, while most people associate it with health insurance for the poor, which is absolutely correct. It, the act, the, another, the, the other biggest portion of folks who receive Medicaid are, are families with seriously ill children. And so the programs vary from state to state. So Medicaid is basically 51 different health insurance plans, depending on the state you live in. And some states like Texas are rather, you know, there's a lot of obstacles. It's very difficult to get on Medicaid. And, um, and then Pennsylvania is, is a better state, which was a bit surprising and, you know, but also good luck for us. So the, the minute she was diagnosed, uh, she was eligible for Medicaid, which meant that we could get home care, nursing, and that her medications would be covered and her diapers would be covered. And um, uh, in fact, the other part of the story is that, that the um, Obamacare or ACA had created a little known provision called the concurrent care provision, uh, which meant that children with life-limiting diseases who receive hospice could um, basically get hospice as a part of kind of supplemental care and still receive active treatment, which is not how hospice works for adult patients, obviously. So my daughter has been receiving hospice care for eight years, um, which means that she can go into the hospital and get treatment, but also come home and have a full hospice team and hospice support. Hospice covers all her medications. um, And she has a a nursing team that comes in and, and oversees her care through hospice. So we were very fortunate to have to live in Pennsylvania, and one of the things I realized very quickly is that not everyone is so fortunate to live in as generous a state as Pennsylvania. Um, I don't know what we would have done without Medicaid. We would be broke, absolutely broke, and also uh, 
I know because my 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 wife was in hospice for several years um, mm. because uh, that her diagnosis at the time was considered definitely fatal within a brief time. She just kept not dying. Uh, so, um, you know, and once she was, first she was in palliative care because she was still getting some treatment, then eventually no treatment. So no, you know, move to hospice. And honestly, it's also having support for the, for living with an incurable illness. Uh, which hospice, if you have good hospice, they're they're kind of experts on that, I guess I'd say. Um, you know, how people live with uh, a certainty that death is coming. Obviously, it's coming for everybody, but not everybody is thinking about it. Um, so that just was very, that seems like a good container to me for the kind of circumstance you're in where um, they're not, they're not trying to cure anything, you know, they're, they're being with you and supporting you. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, unfortunately because he, um, it was, it was rather surprising. We had been working with hospice for eight years, as I said, for my daughter. And in the end, my husband only worked with hospice for a couple weeks and it was a terrible experience with his hospice team, partly because COVID had hit and they were running, they were, they were literally running out of hospice. Uh, so they had yeah. so they had sent everyone home um yeah. in april uh, and it's not like they cleared out the hospitals and people just got out of their beds and said you know see ya i know <laughs> right? right people were discharged and they were still sick so m people went home to die and um the hospice teams and the home care the home care uh programs were absolutely crushed under the deluge of patients and so they there was no one to come and help us. So fortunately we had the money that we hadn't spent for my daughter's care. Um, we were able to, I was able to hire private nurses uh, out of pocket. Um, and he didn't live very long after that period. So it wasn't a huge financial burden, but you know, it's good hospice is good and bad hospice is bad. And it was odd to have kind of both experiences simultaneously. <laughs> Well, As but part of part of what we're talking about, though, is structure, because mm -hmm. what happened with your daughter is that what that the Medicaid included all these things that hospice doesn't do that are so necessary. Uh, my wife, by the time she died, had gone on. She couldn't work anymore. She, you know, was on Medicaid. And so we had some home help. But typically, you don't get that <laughs> with an adult who is dying, which leads to such an incredible burden. And oh, absolutely! I, I was I was amazed at how little help you get when you are caring for someone at home, and and um, they they basically said you can have an aid for an hour a day, and I was like, an aid? An aid is <laughs> what will that do? <laughs> right. What will that do? Um, I mean. An aide can't give medication. An aide can't do a catheter. An aide can just change your diaper and change, clean the bed, and that's about it. That's all they can do. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, the, I, I, I mean, we can do this well. I mean, we can do home case, hosp, home based hospice, and I knew how to do it. So when 
the system didn't come into play for my husband. I was able to recreate what I had learned caring for my daughter. But yeah, so the, I mean, I was struck by what was possible. And then the, 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 con the contrast of the utter failure of the system for my husband's care. I mean, right. And, you know, and, and I was also struck by the, really the limitations of the medical team themselves to discuss what was happening and to prepare us for the, you know, the, the end of his, his disease. I mean, they, they, you know, they know, one of the nurses said to me at the time, well, no one knew how to tell, knew how to tell your husband that, you know, he was going to die because he was so stubborn and none of us knew how to talk to him about it. And I said, well, you know, what? Isn't that your job? <laughs> Isn't that your job? That seems to, seems to be a pretty important. Don't you have person. some tricks? <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, you're an oncology team. This is not at all surprising. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the power of denial and, you know, the re, the re, and, and as Adel Gwande has written, the more, do and it's kind of a surprising paradox that, you know, the more doctors like their patients, the more difficult it is for them to speak the truth to them. So once they get emotionally attached, but it, it's a terrible failure of the system when, you know, we were, he was dragging himself to chemo when he was dying and he should have been home and he should have been resting and he should have been, you know, doing what he needed to do and saying what he needed to say instead of, you know, running on a, 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 a you know, like a gerbil on a wheel, mm. pursuing something that was never going to work. And um, I, I have a lot of I, anger about those decisions and the failures of the medical healthcare system. And I, because I've seen it work and I've seen, I mean, our medical team for my daughter was, you know, they weren't always perfect, but they, they could speak the truth. And it was difficult for, to see his, my husband's medical team really struggle with facing the truth of what, what was happening medically. Absolutely. Um, at another point of, bizarre gratitude is that uh, my wife actually got a condition that, you know, didn't allow her to keep thinking, you know, as a side effect of her cancer, it didn't allow her to keep thinking one more treatment, <laughs> because it was definitely gonna kill her. They said, at the most two, two months, it ended up being four we both know about stubborn people, but <laughs> but I do think that was a mercy because when someone has lived a long time with something that they keep hearing could kill them, it's hard to really, you do need help to get to the place where you say, okay, this is it now. Exactly. It, it, it's hard to make that turn in the road. Um, and I don't know that she would have if if it if there hadn't been this other diagnosis um, that that came into play, so I I think I understand what you're talking about there. There's a, there's a great line from Being Mortal, Al Gwande's book, and he says, you know, you want a doctor who is like Sherman, who knows how to, you know, advance and claim what territory be, can be claimed, but also ultimately, you know, uh, a negotiate a gracious retreat and surrender and mm -hmm. you don't want your your doctor to be custer to <laughs> stand till the bitter end and take everybody with yes yes and, uh, <laughs> so i think that part of that is you know when when medical teams 
you know, have a good open line of communication and they can, and they can, you know, talk to patients and they can sort of break through that powerful force field of denial. Um, you know, they call it at, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, they call it vital talk. They train physicians and how to have those difficult conversations. But I mean, there's so much mercy and grace in acceptance and, uh, you know, a, a, a good surrender as opposed to Absolutely. fighting to the bitter end. And, and that's one of the, I think one of the great, I think, mistakes people make about, you know, being a caregiver, as you know, in, in terms of thinking that I have to fight till the bitter end and I can't give up. And I, you know, I hate the language of fighting, um, you know, and, or hospice is giving up. That's not at all accurate. That's it's, not it's at all accurate. Beautiful I so agree with you. And what I find in me- in the mental health field is the earlier you talk about it, the the more grace you can bring to it to say, okay, you're not dying now, but someday we all will. How do you picture that? You know? Because exactly. <laughs> then it's not the first time you ever talked about it when it's happening. Exactly. And and as if, you know, if you only tried harder or if you didn't Exactly. Give up, it doesn't have, have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. <laughs> oh, Maria, I I'm I'm so on board with you. Uh, you're bringing me back to you know, kind of why we why we made the choice to dive dive into death for all that decade because it did help. It did help. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for this hour. I've really enjoyed our talk. And good luck with your book. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You can find Maria Kafalis at mariacafalis.com or the calliopejoyfoundation.org. Next week, I'll have Amakela back on the show, my friend and colleague. We'll be talking about how her global work with children to help them navigate extreme difficulty has had to change during the pandemic and also how we've all had to navigate. I'm also interested in talking with her about how her music has helped her and all of us face the enormous challenges of this past year. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.